as this video so graphically illustrated, there is a difference between going to church and being the church. And part of the ways that we become the church is to understand the calling of God upon our lives. And that's what I want to talk to you about this morning. If you turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3 or flip your bulletin over, you'll see the scripture that we're going to use um, right there. At the end of the summer of 1999, I was listening to a sermon about being a bondservant when God called me to the ministry with these words, study to show yourself approved and I will make you a minister to my people. And many of you have heard my testimony about how God called me to the ministry. But one part I don't think I've ever mentioned was this, is the fact that I spent the next 30 minutes on my knees in the pew arguing with God about why calling me to the ministry is a very, very bad idea. I mean, I was looking up at God and saying, God, I don't know if an angel fell down on the job up there and he wasn't writing down what happened in my past, so you don't understand this, but you don't understand where I came from, God. I mean, God, I'm a, I was a drunkard. I mean, I wasted most of my high school drinking and being, dr or being on drugs instead of going to school and studying. I mean, I probably could have been an honor roll student and maybe even got a scholarship, but I wasted that gift of God through partying and dropping out of high school. I was a fornicator. I had what I call the Oscar syndrome. And my self-worth was tied to how many women I could possibly sleep with before I got saved. In fact, if you look back at my, at my family history, there isn't a single Oscar in at least four generations that I can find that has not been married multiple times because they have a wandering eye. That's hardly a qualification for ministry, is it? I was a thief. I have a conviction for shoplifting. The only way when I was growing up that I could get new clothes, get stuff for school, was to steal it from stores. It's the only way sometimes that I could even find food when I was living on my own from the time of 15 on. I was a liar. Lying used to be very reflexive with me. If anyone questioned me about something or something that I did, I'd automatically come up with a story and a quick lie about it. And ironically, it's something that I came up with because my mom lived with a very abusive boyfriend and she taught me that if I was going to do something that he didn't like, I better have a good story at the tip of my tongue to be able to excuse or, or come up with a reason why I was doing it so he didn't beat me or beat my mom. And there's a few, these were just a few of the things that I was bringing to God's attention about why I couldn't possibly be called to be a pastor. I had way too much history. In my thinking, God was calling me to be a spiritual superman when I haven't even lived up to being a Clark Kent yet. And after spending time with God, I spoke to my senior pastor at the time, and he encouraged me to pursue the call of God, reminding me of this fact. God does not call the qualified. God qualifies the called. So we're going to look at the calling of God today, and we're going to look at one of the ways that people can serve in the kingdom, and that is in the position of deacon. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8, in the same way deacons are to be worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested 
But then there, if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, the women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be faithful to his wife and must manage his children and his household well. And this is the central verse I want to look at today. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. Father God, we just thank you for your word. I thank you, Father, that through the calling of God, you took a mixed up, messed up, totally sinful kid and turned him into a pastor. That's amazing grace, God. And Father, I just ask, Lord, that you just take this message and help us to realize this same calling is on every person's life. To do something for your kingdom. Father God, use this message this morning to inspire us to serve you in ways that we never thought could be possible. And I ask this in your name. Amen. The first thing I want to say to you this morning is this, and it's critical for you to understand this. Everyone has a call of God upon their life. Every single human being ever created, God has a plan for you. He has a plan and a job that he wishes for you to accomplish. And yes, even you, you haven't messed up so bad that God can't use you yet. God created you for a purpose. Pew sitting is not a spiritual gift. It is not something that we aspire to in the kingdom. You are saved to serve, not saved to sit. After accepting Jesus as your Lord and Savior, there is nothing more important to your eternal soul than finding your place of service in the kingdom of God. Think about this. When the enemy is attacking your heart and mind, when he is coming against you like a flood, when he's telling you how worthless you are and how, how messed up you are, it's for one purpose, and that is to neutralize your calling. That is to neutralize your effectiveness in God's kingdom. And if he does that, the devil has open and free access to your heart. So I want to share a few points about this idea of service in the kingdom of God this morning. And I want to start with something that sounds counterintuitive to what I just said, and that is, you're not worthy. You're not worthy. I'm not worthy. Nobody is worthy of this. Never forget that point. As I said, it seems counterintuitive to the way the world tells us to think about ourselves. It seems counterintuitive to half the TV preachers out there who are sitting there teaching, who are teaching and preaching feel-good messages. You want, they want to say, God, you're okay, God's okay, God thinks you're okay, and they never show people who they really are according to what the Scripture says and according to what Jesus says in the Scriptures. So who are we? And I say we because I include myself in this. This is just me barking at you. This is what the Bible says about us and our natural selves. We are rebels against the king of the universe. We are criminals and violators of the divine law. That is who we are in our natural selves. Criminality and breaking the law in God's kingdom has only one sentence, and that is death and consignment to your eternal soul to hell. That's why Jesus had to come. That's why Jesus saves, because he took upon that penalty. 
upon himself so that we can be saved and we can go to heaven. And it's critical for you to always remember that and to keep that in the back of your mind. And why do we have to do that? Why, why do we have to focus on something such a, so negative about ourselves? Because it keeps you grounded. It keeps you humble. And it keeps you realizing that apart from Jesus working in your life, you can do nothing that will have eternal value. And how, how, where do we learn this from? Where, is this, where do we see this in the Bible? Well, I would say the greatest author in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul. And if there is anyone in history that was the biggest criminal on earth, it was Paul. If there's anyone who deserved an immediate, violent, and shameful death, followed by consignment to the hottest portion of hell, it was Saul of Tarsus. That was Paul's name before he met Jesus. I mean, think about it, about Saul's qualifications for ministry, about the history that he brought to the table. Imagine for a moment you're part of a pastoral search committee and Paul's resume comes across your desk and you look at this resume and you go, wow, look at this guy's education. Wow, look how smart this guy is. Wow, look at the books that he has written. And you say, well, we got to get this guy. We want him as the pastor of our church. And, and so you bring him into an interview and you, say, and you begin the interview and you say, hey, Paul, can you describe for me what you did at your last ministry job? And Paul would say, well, I locked up Christians in prison. Matter of fact, I made sure they were put to death. After that, I punished them. I pursued them all over the place. I made them blaspheme against Jesus. I put a sword to their neck and I said, you better deny Jesus right now or I'm going to cut your head off. That's what Paul did before he became a Christian. I mean, would the interview end at that point? But when you read Paul's writings of who he was before Christ, Paul always put it out there. He isn't worthy of the position that God gave him. He freely acknowledges, I was a murderer, I was a blasphemer, I was a violent man. And even he says he doesn't deserve to be called a Christian. He said, I am less than the least of all God's people. Not much less be an apostle of Jesus. But after he says all this, he sums up his opinion of himself like this. He said, by the grace of God, I am who I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was within me. He pointed back to the grace of Jesus Christ working in him. And that leads us to our next point. Jesus makes you worthy of the calling. Remember when I quoted my pastor who told me that God does not call the qualify. He qualifies the called. God gets a kick out of using the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. He does. That's why I said he called me to the ministry just to show other people how stupid they are. Because they said if I could do it, Anyone could do it. And God does that to say that he can even take molded dirt. If you think about it, that's what humanity is, is molded dirt. And he makes it into a vessel that can carry his divine presence to this entire world. And too often we focus on our shortcomings. Maybe you're like me. Maybe you, you think that you're a much better sinner than you ever were a saint. 
and that the and your past still haunts you today. But if you keep focusing on the past, you're going to miss the incredible, glorious future that God has for you if you simply believe. And that's where the enemy wants to keep you. He wants to keep you focused on what happened um, in the past instead of where God is leading you. One of the most striking examples in the Bible is that of Moses. Moses is called to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt. And he gets this calling about 40 years old, decides that he's going to go take, take off and, and lead the people out of there. And he starts the wrong way. Instead of pointing people to God, he points people to himself. He goes out and starts killing people. Pharaoh finds out about it. He has to run for his life. Runs away into the desert for another 40 years. God renews his calling again. And now God, Moses is trying to come up with every excuse that he can think of. Saying, God, I don't even know who you are. God, I thought you called me back 40 years ago. I don't even know who you are now. I don't know your name. I don't know who you are. You said, I am who I am. What kind of a name is that? You won't even tell me your name. I, I, I can't do this. You know, even, even if, I, if, if I chose to believe you, they're not going to believe me. Look what happened last time. I ended up running for my life. They won't believe me. And besides, Pharaoh hates me. He hates me with a passion. He sent people to pursue after me. I mean, he really, really hates my guts. He's not going to listen to me. And besides that, I don't have any problem. I can't even speak right. So what makes you think I'm going to be able to stand before the great orators of Egypt and make sense and be able to proclaim your word? What makes you think I can do any of that? And excuse after excuse comes from Moses. Until God had enough and reminded Moses of a few things. The Lord said to him in Exodus chapter 4, Who has made man's mouth? Who has made him mute or deaf or seen or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, I will be your mouth. I will teach you what to speak. God was trying to take Moses' eyes off of his own power or off of his own ability and focus it on who God is and his power. God qualifies the called. Oswald Chambers says, sums up this idea beautifully when he said the way that we continue, continually talk about our own inabilities is an insult to our Creator. To complain over our incompetence is to accuse God falsely of having overlooked us. Get in the habit of examining from God's perspective those things that sound so humble to men. You will be amazed at how unbelievably inappropriate and disrespectful they are to him. We say things such as, oh, I shouldn't claim to be sanctified. I'm not a saint. But to say that before God means no, Lord, it is impossible for you to save and sanctify me. There are opportunities I have had and, and many imperfections in my brain and body. No, Lord, it isn't possible. You know, that may sound wonderfully humble to others, but before God, it is an attitude of defiance. Listen, you're not worthy. I'm not worthy the Pope, Billy Graham, whatever spiritual giant you want to put before me, they weren't worthy either. Jesus is worthy. 
Jesus is what we focus on. Jesus is what qualifies us. Cast all your fear, all your doubt, and all your unbelief upon him. And if you remember who he is, he will give you the faith. He will give you the hope you need. He will give you the love, and he will direct your path. Your job is to be willing and obedient. And if you do that, Jesus promises to take care of the rest. Next, let's look at what receiving a calling or a promotion means in the kingdom. And I just want to warn you now, it's the exact opposite of the way the world sees promotion. Very simply, promotion or calling in the kingdom means you need to die to yourself. I know that sounds so attractive, doesn't it? I would be honest with you this morning, you probably have a severe problem with that. I mean, we all want our own way, but our way is usually not the kingdom way. Most of us re, 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 recoil against that idea of dying to ourselves. Two out of three Jesus' closest friends were James and John, and among the disciples, they were probably the most ambitious. They saw Jesus as Messiah, but they had a wrong view of what being Messiah meant. They thought Jesus was going to usher in this glorious earthly kingdom like what Solomon had. One would be the most glorious world had ever seen that Israel would become the greatest superpower that had ever been in history again. And they were poised as Jesus' closest friends to be in the upper echelon in that kingdom. So they wanted to make sure of their position. They decided to say, hey mom, you know, Jesus really likes you. And Jesus would give you whatever you wanted. So go ask him, you know, when you come into your kingdom, make sure you put James and John on either side of you, of either side of your throne, so people will look at them too when they look at Jesus, the king. Now, when the other disciples um, heard about it, it says that the other disciples were a little indignant when they found out. You read things like that in the Bible and you go, you think? You think the other, the other ten guys were saying, really guys, really? It reminded me of a time when I was a supervisor at the medical call center. We had a new director that came in, and we were all sitting in a meeting discussing staffing about a new contract that was coming. And he asked if there was any way that we could run a report or show some way that, that showed when our highest call volumes were and where in the country they were coming from, because we got calls from East Coast, West Coast, North, South, everywhere in the country. And every, all the other supervisors sat there silent. And I held up my hand and I said, yeah, yeah, you just run a report from the computer program that runs our, our phone system, and it'll graph it out. It'll show you where, when, you know, all the um, average calls per hour for the last week. See, I had been on the overnight shifts for months, and sometimes we only had four other people there. So as a supervisor, you really had nothing else to do but sit there and play with the call program. So I, I did. I sat there and played with it. I knew it really well. And so I went out of the office, went over, ran the report, come in with a big stack of information. And all the other supervisors, including all the supervisors that had been there much longer than I had been, were sitting there giving me the stink eye. Like, oh, here's John trying to put himself above all, us and, and make us look bad. And they thought I was trying to show them up. And... This is why I really stink at office politics, because I'm usually oblivious to these kind of things. I probably should have just went after the meeting and, and done it. But that's what the disciples 
were doing with James and John. They're giving them this stink eye because to, to them it seemed like they were trying to edge them out of a position that should be shared with everyone and not just a few. Jesus uses this situation and pulls them aside and gives them a true nature about what leadership in the kingdom really looks like. It says that Jesus called them to him, brings them aside for a lesson. And he said that you know the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It should not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must first be your servant. But whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to serve or be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Many times we look at promotion, we look at calling as this huge deal that you're going to be up on a pedestal somewhere that's going to be this great exalted thing for yourself. Promotion is, is, is nothing that we puff our chest out and say, look at me. It's not some golden scepter or red carpet treatment that you're being called into. And one of the tragedies of modern Christianity is this idea that those with a title, whether you want to call them a pastor, elder, apostle, deacon, evangelist, whatever, that they're somehow more favored, more spiritual, or more godly than your average Christian. That's kind of like saying that a mailman has better penmanship than anybody in this room because they deliver the mail. I mean, obviously that's not true. They're just fulfilling a a job that, that they have. If people who have a title in the church or a position in the church are doing anything right, it is this. They're being willing and obedient to the call of God upon their life. In essence, spiritual promotion is a death sentence. It's putting aside your life so that the life of Christ may be developed in you so that it can be developed in others. And there is no higher calling in the kingdom than that. To realize it's all about Jesus. It's all about his kingdom. And it's all about his will in our lives. The final reason today that I want to bring up that God calls people to positions in the kingdom is to, so that they serve and so that they grow. When I was an ALS manager at a rescue station in Lake Geneva, I had a guy that had been there for 10 years longer than I had. He would always come in late. 8 o'clock would roll around, and Bill isn't there. 8.15 would roll around. Bill still isn't there. His relief is still sitting there because he can't leave until your relief gets there. Now, 8.30, here comes Bill. Bill comes trudging through the station carrying his bag. He's not in uniform. He's in a pair of holy sweatpants. Doesn't look like he's showered in three days. He is unshaven, he's a mess. He walks in, walks past the ambulances that needed to be checked, walks into the uh, bedroom at the station, closes the door and takes a nap. He's nowhere ready to run out on a call. And we had a standard that from 6 a.m. to 10 p.m., we were out the door on a rescue call within 30 seconds to one minute. That was our goal, to be out the door that quickly. Or Bill was lucky to make it out the door in three to four minutes because he had to wake up and he had to go to the bathroom and he had to get dressed and then he had to walk over to the wall map and figure out where he's going and then finally he might walk to the ambulance. 
So it would take forever for him to go en route. And it was frustrating to me as the ALS manager because the owner wouldn't let me level any consequences against him because he'd been there forever. And but the, whenever I would bring it up to Lou, the boss, I would say, Lou, Lou Bill's killing us, man. I mean, he's, he's, this attitude he has is spreading, and you're not letting me do anything about it. And he goes, well, that's just Bill. So I was in the office. This was during the time when I first got called to the ministry, and I'm, I'm in there studying, and I have my books laid out and everything. And I couldn't concentrate because I was really frustrated about the situation. And so I decided, you know, I can either be frustrated or maybe pray about it. Maybe God will give me an answer. So as I prayed and prayed and prayed, God gave me an answer. And he said, promote him. I said, God, that's crazy. You don't promote slackers with no motivation. Promotion is something you earn, God. Keep in mind, I was in the military. So you earn promotion. You just don't get a promotion. You have to, to be one of the high-speed, low-drag kind of people out there. These, you got to be a hard charger, toe the line, set an example. And I didn't get any answer from God. I'm sitting here yelling at God. And he does it. I do that sometimes. And, you know, he, he gave me my answer, and he stays silent usually until I obey. So finally, I'm faced with this no-win situation, and I did the only thing I could. I promoted him to the open position of shift manager. And that meant he was responsible for everything that happened in, his, in the division during his shift. And if something went wrong, that meant he had to deal with Lou and not me. Suddenly, his attitude changed. He showed up early. He stayed late. He made sure there were smooth shift transitions. He did roll call and memos and made sure people were towing the line. He even showed up showered and in uniform, and his average response time went from three and a half minutes to 45 seconds. And God used this secular situation to teach me a spiritual truth. There are people who stagnate in their walk with God because they're living beneath their calling. Let me say that again. There are people who are stagnant in their walk with God because you're living beneath your calling. You have been called by God to a higher place of service than where you are right now in life. But you've resisted, you've refused, you've run away, you've made excuses, and the result is spiritual stagnation. Jesus gave us a promise. And he went to the cross to win this promise for us. That he would allow rivers of living water to be poured through us and into his followers. The problem is that sometimes his followers want to hoard that water. We want to say, give me more, give me more, give me more. We'll go to revival meetings and say, give me more, give me more, give me more. And we try to keep it to ourselves. But living water isn't meant to be kept. It's meant to be shared. Note that Jesus said, I'm going to give you a river of living water. Rivers flow somewhere. He's not giving us a reservoir. He's not giving us a pool. He's not giving us an ocean. He's giving us a river. And a river, by definition, flows from one point to another. This river of living water that flows through you is meant to flow through you and flow into somebody else. If a river just fills an area and has no outlet, that turns into a swamp. Jesus isn't in the business of producing swamps. He's in the business of producing life. And he's not going to continue to feed that river of water that's flowing in you until you become obedient to the call that he has on your life. So I ask you today, 
What is God's call in your life? Because he has a call for every person here. Some of you are already living in it. And I thank God for you when I, when I remember you in prayer. But some of you, I think, are living underneath the call that he has for you. So I want to take a moment this morning as we close and ask that God reveal that call for you. Because as I said, after salvation, the most important thing you can do for your spiritual walk and the most important thing you can do for your eternal reward is understand and find the calling of God that he has on your life. So let's all stand. We're not going to have music. We're not going to have worship. We're just going to have a time of silence because I want to give the Holy Spirit time to move in your hearts this morning so you can hear it for yourself. And not only does God call, you may understand the calling of God, but he may be directing that call into a different direction or a different season. And maybe there's a resistance in your life about that. So I'm going to pray that God removes those resistance. Let's pray.